if our denomination, the Free Church of Scotland, is known for anything uh, in Scotland today, one of the things that we're definitely known for is our psalm singing. So if anybody knows anything about the Free Church of Scotland, uh, certainly in church circles, I think we're known as the psalm singing denomination or we're, we're known as the psalm singing church. Because of that, I'm sure that there's a number of people in the room just now who know how uh, the, the book of Psalms begins. We know how the book of Psalms begins. This God-given uh, songbook that we've got in the Bible, it begins uh, with what is, I suppose, a gateway and a gateway song. So in Psalm number one, we have this song that really sets before us two ways of life, doesn't it? If you know Psalm number one, two ways of life, two value systems, two ways of living in Psalm one. On, on one hand, you have in Psalm one, the godly man set before us. The psalmist says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So you've got that on one hand, the godly path, the godly way of life. But what else does Psalm number one do? It sets before us the life and the path of the ungodly. Psalm one speaks about the wicked, who's like the chaff that the wind blows away. Everyone sees it. Psalm number one, two ways of life, two ways of living, two value systems, if you like. Well, this morning at St. Peter's, we come to a slightly different section of, of Luke's gospel, where instead of, I suppose, watching Jesus, as we've been doing recently as he goes around in Galilee, this morning, what we're supposed to do really is to cup our ear, and we are to listen to Jesus. Because from here into chapter 7, what we find is a section of his teaching a section of Jesus' instruction, his preaching. And do you not agree there are certain similarities with Psalm number one? Do you notice what we have here? Do you notice what we read? What Jesus does for us this morning is he sets before us two ways of living. Jesus sets before you two value systems, two ways of life. You must have noticed it. One, we have the Beatitudes, don't we? So Jesus is showing us, it's amazing, he shows us the path, not just to happiness, but the path to God's favor. So we have the Beatitudes. But then on the other hand, what did you notice? We also had woes. The path not just to divine displeasure, but actually the path that leads to divine judgment. And so, I think it's fairly obvious what we're to do this morning. This morning, you and I are to examine our own lives. You, me, we're to examine our values, our hearts. How are we living just now? Can I push into that? For what are we living? Or can we not push a little bit further, most especially for whom are we living today? So let us uh, look to these verses. The first thing that uh, we need and ought to consider 
are the conditions, the conditions for divine blessing. The conditions for divine blessing. And at this juncture of many a sermon uh, that I've preached, at this juncture, I will very often, I did it last Sunday night, I will ask, what is it that we're dealing with here? What have we got? What have we got in our hands? What are we dealing with? I really especially need to ask that this morning. Uh, You see, the most famous sermon that has ever been preached, I reckon, um, is a sermon that Jesus himself gave, and it's recorded in Matthew's gospel, and it goes by the name, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, we, we know this, don't we? The most famous sermon of all. And I suppose just for a moment or two, we have to address, well, is that what we've got here? Like, is this actually here? Is this Luke's record, Luke's account of that uh, famous sermon. You, you see the idea. Is this what we've got here? Is this just, a, is this just G- Jesus teaching in a different setting that seems to just bear some resemblance to that famous sermon? Or is this actually Luke's record, Luke's account of that most famous sermon? Well, if you were to take all sort of evangelical uh, scholars and ministers and commentators and you would put them all on the line, I reckon you could probably split it down the middle 50-50 of what they would say here, to be honest. But for what it's worth, because of the similar beginning, similar middle, similar end, and similar themes throughout, I'm going to suggest to you that actually perhaps this is indeed Luke's record of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke's record of the Sermon on the Mount. So can you see what's happened? Where was Jesus Jesus was up the mountain praying, and he was choosing the apostles, wasn't he, last time? And so Jesus has come part of the way down the mountain, and he's been met by this vast crowd that's come from all over the place. And what has Jesus done? Perhaps on a plateau, a level playing field, about halfway up the mountain, Jesus has paused, and Jesus has looked, and Jesus has preached, and he has taught this crowd. So you're with me thus far? Perhaps, and we can't be too categorical, perhaps this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me say this. Some of you are crazy. (laughs) Sounds a bit offensive from the front, but you'll understand because there is an epidemic of wild swimming that is breaking out at (laughs) St. Peter's. I... You're crazy. I mean, swimming in Scotland, in the sea, in like February. It's, it's incredible. And one reason that you will never find me anywhere near that is my loathing of, you know, that initial shock you get when you enter really cold water. I, I cannot deal with that. You know, you step in and you freak out, don't you? And you step in and it's almost like, you know, that, that idea of breath being ripped from. <gasps> I just, I, I, I cannot handle that and I will never be part of this. But, but in all seriousness, as you here turn into what Jesus actually says at this point, is it not in a sense that, that there should be a similar sensation that just sweeps over us just now. Because as you consider how Jesus begins here, 
And if you look at it with new eyes, isn't it shocking? Because think about what he is confronting you with this morning. He he is saying, these are the things that will result ultimately in divine favor. And what were the terms? Can I read them to you? Blessed are the poor. Isn't that shocking? Blessed are the hungry, the the weeping. We can summarize the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted or opposed. Isn't it shocking? If we look at it with new eyes. Now, because this so evidently demands our consideration, investigation, this is what I want to do. What I want to do is just suggest two errors that I think you and I should try best to avoid when we're trying to wrestle and understand what Jesus is saying. Two errors we should avoid. Now, I'm going to put them up on the screen. Put up the first one. I will warn you, it's a little bit wordy, but if you stick with me, we will work through an error to avoid. Let's read it. Stick with me. So, blessed are the poor, the hungry, the poor, the hungry. First error, we should avoid overemphasizing a social or the social economic plight overemphasizing that. Does that seem wordy? Does it seem wordy? Okay, what about a scenario? Let's say that you're on holiday, let's say in England, and it's a Sunday, and, and, and you go to church, and you find that you've stumbled into a very, very, very liberal congregation on holiday. We should have done our homework better, Right? But sometimes it's not like that. You stumble in, you hear a sermon. At the end, you're speaking to the vicar. Now, the vicar in this very liberal congregation has spoken on these words that we have read. Blessed is the, blessed are you who are poor. So what have you heard in that, 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 that short sermon in that liberal congregation? What have you heard? I think you know. You know that much of liberal Christianity would say this that what we have before us is almost Jesus' social justice manifesto. You know, Jesus here, what would the the liberal Christian say? Jesus here is speaking about the day when God will reverse the plight of all of the world's poor. God will eventually turn the tables for all those who are impoverished, for all those who are hungry. A social justice manifesto here in Luke's gospel. Christian friends, that is not right. That's not the case. And what we have to affirm is that here, there is a very clear spiritual dimension to what Jesus is saying. Isn't there? A spiritual dimension, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are hungry. A spiritual dimension. Now, now, just for a moment, consider the context. What's this? This is Luke's gospel. What, what do we know? We actually know Luke has spoken time and again about the poor. Hasn't he? Good news to the poor. And, and, and in chapter 4, when Luke has illustrated who he's talking about there in the poor, and he's gone to the Old Testament for an example of the poor, who does he bring before our eyes? Do you remember in chapter 4? It was Naaman the Syrian. What do we know about him? He was a wealthy, wealthy man, but poor 
before God. And then for a moment, you consider what you know about Matthew's version of this. The the Matthew Sermon on the Mount, I reckon you can actually fill in the, the blanks, can't you? What does Matthew say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see it, don't you? This is not just about people's socioeconomic plight. If nothing else, Jesus here is talking spiritually about the spiritually poor, about the spiritually hungry and those who have fled because of that spiritual bankruptcy to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's one mistake we must avoid. There's another. I I do want to say before I bring this up on screen, this second error is the one that we are much more likely to make I think, uh, St. Peter's. I wonder if we could bring up the second error. We must at the same time avoid ignoring the language. We're good at that. We must avoid ignoring the socioeconomic plight altogether. So I would just ask you a very simple question. Who's Jesus talking to at this point? Did you notice it in the text? If you'll see it if you look at verse 20. Let's look at verse 20 and bring it up. So he's come down the mountainside. There's this plateau. And we've said that the crowd is present. Isn't it like people from Tyre and Sidon and Judea, Jerusalem, they've all gathered. But what does Jesus do? Do you notice? Jesus lifts up his eyes and he speaks to, ah, not the crowd. Did you notice the emphasis? He's speaking to his people, his followers, his apostles as well. And what do we know about them? We know that amongst them are so many people who are going to know great difficulty and need and want from their decision to follow Jesus. Like just track back to what we've heard. Think about Levi. Do you remember Levi? What has he done? He's left his career. He's left this source of income to follow Jesus. Do you remember Peter and James and John? Do you remember what they did? They left everything to to follow Jesus. Do you see who's in focus? Who is it that's been promised blessing? Hear this. It's Jesus' weary people. Here being promised blessing are Jesus' needy, needy people. It's those who are struggling through their life day by day, but yet still looking to and seeking to live for Jesus. And so, so I think... As the minister here at St. Peter's, I think there is an unusual weightiness to this portion of Scripture. I think there's an unusual relevance to what we're dealing with here. Because what do we know? We know there's an awful lot of people at St. Peter's in this boat. Isn't that right? To you, the Christian in here, who is knowing material want because of your desire to honor Jesus, here Christ speaks to you. To you in here who is yearning, craving for greater holiness in your life, here in these verses, Christ, he speaks to you. To those in the room just now who are weeping, as you go through a a real dark valley, and as you cling to God through that dark chapter of your life, to, to you who is knowing abuse and ridicule for Jesus' name, to you here, Christ speaks. And what does he promise you? What is the great word of the Beatitudes? 
He promises you blessing. Here, Christian friend, at the start of the most famous sermon that's ever been preached, what do we find? We find God's grace. So one, the conditions uh, for blessing. Jesus' needy people, his weary, struggling people. Second of all, let's consider the content of divine blessing, the content of divine blessing. So um, I think I'm right in saying this. After a few years of not having something like this, um, things are going to change. And later this year, St. Peter's is holding a, a weekend away. Right in saying it's been a good few years since that's happened. But later this year, a weekend away. So from the 17th to the 19th of November, what we are going to do is we're going to relocate uh, just for a few days. And we're going to go to Lendrick Muir uh, for a time of teaching and a time of fellowship. Uh, together weekend away now as part of all that organization that glorious organization that goes into that what we've done is organized for a guest preacher a guest speaker to come along uh, so you won't have to deal with this you won't have to deal with uh, these dulcet tones but <coughs> so simon r scott um from i'll get, get this right all nations church in ilford which is a church plant in a predominantly Muslim context. So he's going to come along and he's going to give, uh, he's going to speak maybe three times, maybe four times over the course of the weekend. Now, this is his theme that he's been given. So a spoiler alert, I suppose, is it? But he's going to speak on the theme of our heavenly home. That's great, isn't it? I mean, as Christians, we, we talk an awful lot about heaven. What are we talking about? Yes? The, the new heavens and new earth. What exactly is it that God has prepared for those who love him? Well, that weekend is a while away. But praise God, in this section that we have open in front of us, I think God gives us a little foretaste of what we are talking about. Did you notice that the blessing that Jesus talks about here, it is not just general. Do you notice that there are details that Jesus gives us here? And this is important. So important, isn't it? To, to understand what lies ahead of us in Christ because that helps us to live for Jesus Christ right now, today. So I, I can feel reasonably confident this morning that you'll do this. I'm quite confident that you will because of the grandeur of these words, you will follow me as we just look at four aspects of this blessing. Let's look first of all at verse 20. Note the promise of the... Do you see the, the kingdom of God? Now, Chris has kindly brought that up on the screen. You have it in front of you. Um, can I ask you what you note about that promise? Think about the tense. Do you notice it's, it's present tense? Yours is the kingdom of, of God. What we have here is the idea of the already, but not yet. Oh, the reality that the poor in Jesus Christ, that's you, who's recognized your, your spiritual insolvency and bankruptcy, you've run to Jesus, the poor in Christ, their reward has already been 
secured. It's already begun. That Christian friend, we are already part of his kingdom. That we are already Christ's subjects. And as such, we are set to receive the coming great treasures of Jesus' rule. That's coming to you. That's coming to me, the poor the poor in spirit, the poor in Jesus Christ, coming to the children of God, our spiritual riches beyond our wildest imagination. The fact that in the last, we are going to even, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we are even, you and I, going to reign, reign with Christ in his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Is it splendid? Second, if we look at verse 21... I'm going to ask you to note the promise that's given to the hungry, the hungry. Do you notice it there? Do you, do you think it is not lovely? A promise to those who hunger, the promise of satisfaction. I think you can see the idea. To those who are today craving more of Jesus Christ, more of God, to those who are sick to the stomach of the malnutrition that comes by sin to, to those that promise what? Is a coming great spiritual fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, I think that the idea that we have here is the same idea that you and I find time and time again throughout the Bible. And it's that idea of this great coming heavenly banquet for the people of God. So to you, the poor, to those who are hungry, listen to what Isaiah says to you. You hunger today? The Lord of hosts will make a feast. And he will make a feast of food, of rich food, of a feast of well-aged wine. Isn't it marvelous for us? Like there is a day coming when we will not have to just feed on these scraps we don't just have to survive on lean pickings. There's a day coming when, when all of the church of Jesus Christ, we're going to know full spiritual nourishment to make our hearts rejoice and our hearts content. That is coming to us. Three, we find something. I know it's a free church worship service. <laughs> but I think we find next, third, something that will make us all smile Really, because to those who mourn, for those who weep, what does Jesus Christ promise? Do you notice the promise of laughter? I want to ask you if you have ever paused in your devotional life uh, to ask yourself what heaven is going to sound like. Have you ever thought about the, the soundtrack to the new heavens and the new earth? Have you ever lingered on that? I think there's a lot of musical people uh, at uh, St. Peter's for those who are musical. What do we, we maybe think about? We think about the songs of heaven. Oh, that's worth you lingering on, isn't it? We think about the, the, the noise, the cacophony of song. I mean, think about all of the church of Jesus Christ. From all ages, the, the patriarchs right through the apostles and the reformers and those who have gone before us, and we're all there, and we all gather around Jesus. And he's the, the throne there, the, the lamb slain. And what do we do? We, we lift up 
our voice, we're going to worship, and we're joining our song to all this, the angelic realms, all the uh, legions of angels. We're going to lift up our voices in song and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We will sing. But there's something else, something that's so important for us to understand. We must understand that heaven will resound to the noise of laughter. There will be laughing. Isn't that a delightful idea? Isn't it? Praise God for this. That just like in an airport, in a, the arrivals gate in an airport, if you are quiet at arrivals gate, what, what do you hear? Do you know what you hear? You hear joy, don't you? You know, as, as, as friends and family, they reunite, they come together as, as after long time. And there's that laughter and that's just as that is true there, so it will be true in heaven as Christian kin, as they reunite in, in glory. And we will laugh as we at last know this long-awaited embrace of Jesus Christ. We will see him, we will smile, but there will be laughter. You mourn. Today, so many at St. Peter's, we, we weep because we're going through dark valleys. We're going through terrible things. You mourn a day, but Christ says to you, one day you will laugh in him. One day we will, we will hear the laughter of glory. And then the, the last of the four in verse 23. Do you notice the promise to those who are spurned and those who are opposed in verse 23 comes the promise of a reward. There's not a great reward. I think you can, you can see what's happening. You can see that, that Jesus Christ is promising that there will be a reversal, won't there? And for, for those who in this life today are hated because of Jesus' name, in the end, that hatred will turn into honor from God. Isn't that it? For those who today, and there are so many of our brothers and sisters, those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake, that will change. They will receive a prize. That those who are condemned today by this sin-scarred world, in the end, for those who are being condemned, there will be a crown, and it will be a crown of righteousness bestowed by, by God himself on his persecuted people. Does this not whet your appetite. Doesn't it? For what is ahead in Christ Jesus? I think we read this and the words of Paul the Apostle come to mind, don't they? As with the kids, so with us. Romans 8, listen. Oh friend, do you need to hear? Do you need to be reminded? The sufferings of this present time, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. We see the conditions for divine blessing, but we also see the content of the divine blessing. And then lastly, most briefly, we also have to address the contrast to the divine blessing. So I, I said earlier on that if you were to line up all sort of evangelical scholars, put them all on the line, 
I said earlier on that they would be split kind of down the middle on whether this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount or not. One reason that, that, that some scholars are skeptical is because of Luke's inclusion of some material that is not found in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. So Luke includes stuff that is not found in Matthew. So if you know the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel quite well, some of you have studied it in your fellowship groups, Sermon on the Mount, you know that Matthew has many more Beatitudes than Luke has here. So you know that. But what does Luke do instead? Do you notice that Luke, Luke looks to the contrast? And before us, we find four woes. And woes ways of living, values that people hold, that Jesus, the Son of God here, is saying leads to, to God's displeasure. Jesus is saying that you live like this. It leads ultimately to God's judgment. Now, you know, the honest, obvious thing for me to say is we don't have time just now, do we, to, to go into the, these foes in great detail. But they are so important for people to hear. Can we not at least summarize it? What is Jesus doing? He is warning about a life that is lived in independence from God. Jesus here is warning about a selfish life, a life that is lived for self, a life without reference or dependence upon Jesus Christ himself. And I think if you just scan it, Chris has put it up here, verses 24 to 26. If you just scan the woes, doesn't that come across? Just, just follow me. There's a woe for who? For the rich. A woe for the rich? That's not just those who are loaded. It's not. But it's for, for those who are looking to their wealth for all of their security. That's what you have there. What's the next one? A woe for the fool. For the fool now. Do you see what that is? Jesus warning against those who see no need for God. They are satisfied apart from God. What's the next one? A woe for those who laugh. The, the, the meaning of the word there is about those who delight in the misfortunes of other people. Woe to them. And then the last one, do you, do you see it? A woe for those of whom people always speak well. Do you know those sorts of people? Those sorts of people, it doesn't matter the cost, but their name is number one. Their honor is number one. Not the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you have those woes, those four woes in front of you. They are on the screen. Okay, I ask you, what strikes you about them? What does that look like to you? I want to suggest that what you have on the screen and before you in the woes is a perfect, perfect description of the value system of the world that we live in today. Like if you were to describe the values that are advanced by social media influencers. So you had to describe the values advanced by YouTubers or the values that are advanced by Harris Academy, the values advanced by Abertay University, the values advanced by your unbelieving family, the values advanced by your unbelieving colleagues and friends. Would you not have this? Would it not be you live for yourself? You live for your gut. 
You live, pursue what you want. Live for your satisfaction. Live for your riches. Live for your wealth. And so does that not make what Jesus says here so disturbing for us? Because what does Jesus make clear? That the value system of this world leads to destruction. I mean, did you notice the terms? Like for the rich and the fool, do you notice what is promised in the end? Hunger. What's that? That's spiritual. Famine in the end. To those who are laughing and living for themselves. Did you notice what? Look, mourning. In the end, weeping and and gnashing of teeth. It leads to destruction. So, So I end just by reiterating what I said at the beginning. What Jesus is doing is pushing his hearers to analyze their own value system and how they are living. And he's not just talking to people in the first century. Here Jesus is pushing you and me. So I say it again. How are you living? For what are you living? For whom are you living? So are you amongst those who are rich in this life and full and satisfied, those who are destined for destruction, is that you? Or are you the other way? By the grace of God, do you know that you're spiritually bankrupt and you've run to Jesus Christ? Are you amongst those who are set to know Jesus' smile and as you embrace Jesus Christ in the last, that you will hear the laughter of the Son of God? Are you amongst that group? If it is that latter, don't you rejoice? And don't you, aren't you filled with gratitude to God just now for what has Christ done? For you, he lived Sam 1's righteous life. And then you think about Golgotha. What did Jesus do there for you? He bore all your woes. All your judgment, all of it, for your self-seeking, for your pursuit of your, yourself, for your selfishness, Christ endured all of those woes and judgment. Are we not filled with gratitude today? Do we not praise Jesus Christ for his work? It is a work that has secured for us great things. It is a work that is secured for the spiritually poor, heavenly reward. Let's pray.